that uh, he will hold me fast thing just messes me up. Uh, so I think I'm recovered now. The title of the sermon is, Is Anything Too Difficult for the Lord? What do you think? Um, you're sitting in church, so I know you know what you should say. My, my question is, do you really believe it? Are you really living it? That's really, that's really always the, the genuine answer, right? It's not, it's not always what comes off our tongue. It's how we do it. It's how we live it. Um, is anything too hard for God? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? You guys know where that text comes from, I assume, in Genesis, where the Lord tells uh, Abraham that Sarah will have a child, and she laughed. Is anything too hard for God? Many Christians, you know, I grew up in the church too, and uh, I was a little rascal in the church. I know we don't have any rascals here, but I was quite the rascal. I think, I think Baden was, was a rascal too, as I recall. Um, but you know, you, you ask your average Southern Baptist about Moses or maybe David or maybe the Apostle Paul, they, they could talk for a little while about that. You ask them about God, and sometimes the conversation is very short. It's um, one reason we're studying the attributes of God on Sunday evening. You're obviously invited to come and join us. We're trying to expand our view of who our Creator and our Redeemer is. We have some friends in Europe. I think I shared this last week with the, with the group on Sunday night. They want to keep studying with Karen and I. And uh, so I suggested John Piper's book, new book, called Providence. Uh, 700 pages. How many of you have ever read a 700-page book? We have a couple. How many have read more than five 700-page books? <laughs> All right. We've got some scholars up in here. Um, I've actually read this book twice, and I've started to go through again. That's how much I love it. Um, I was surprised. They said, yes, we want to do it. We're going to do it. We'll, uh, we'll do Piper's book. I recommend it to you because God will get bigger. God will get bigger in your eyes and always that's the imperative for the true believer that God would get bigger. If you don't have a big view of God, your worship will be tepid and so will your life. But if you are proactively cultivating awe which is hopefully what we're trying to do Sunday evenings, cultivating it, developing it, generating it as we look at God, as we think deeply and read deeply about who He is and how He's revealed Himself in the Scripture. Some of you may or may not believe this, but biblical theology matters more than anything else in your life. Now, I know you think oxygen is the most important thing. It's not. Theology, right thinking about your Creator and your 
Redeemer. You heard Joe read the text? <clears throat> you know, if you, if you really believe Psalm 103, 19, you are equipped. You're equipped to, to live the Christian life. You actually can't live it unless you believe He is sovereign over all. His sovereignty rules over all. All. Not most, not many, all. And that means in your life, every aspect of your life. If you don't have this big view of God, you can't walk with Jesus. You won't. You can't. You can be a church member. Anybody can be a church member. But you can't go out there and walk with Him. If you don't believe He's sovereign over all, you won't do it. You'll shrink back every time. Every time it starts to get hard, you will shrink back. I, I've been there. I know I'm an old man, so I can tell you. You have to have this expansive view of God. And just a little bit of trembling, you know. I, I know I keep bringing this up, but, but, you know, try to find a way that there might be a little bit of trembling every day in your life. And the way that is for me is to read theology. It's to, it's to be in the Scripture. You know, you get that big view of God, and, 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 and you, can, you, can, you have license to believe and obey as big as you dare. There are no limitations. You read the Gospels. You read the words of Jesus. There are no limitations on the believer. None. You can believe him as big as you dare. And he will meet you there. He will meet you there. Born again Christianity, it's always Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. The people who do know, this is why we're in the attributes of God. The people who do know their God shall be strong and they shall do exploits. That's the... King James Version. We know that Yahweh is sovereign. What does it mean? What does sovereignty mean? He's unlimited in power and authority. He has no peer. He has no colleague. He does whatever he pleases. He says it multiple times in the scripture. I do whatever I please. I'm God. Nobody else is God. I'm God. He says, I do whatever I please. All creation from sparrows to stars to Satan to the sinful acts of man, God is sovereign. Over all history, calamity, life and death, the plans of men, conversions, His sovereignty rules over all. We know and experience Job 25 too. It's the one that's on my wall. It's right here. I look at it all the time. I turn and I look. Karen will say, some problem has come up. I turn and I look. Or some email comes across that's, uh, shall, shall I say, disturbing. I turn and I look at Job 25, 2. Dominion and all belong to my God. Dominion and all belong to Him. So I don't care what problem comes across my desk. It really doesn't matter. Dominion and all, right? I, I, Karen will tell you, I say it all the time. Dominion and all. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, dominion and all. It just, it's dominion and all. I love it. Words to live by. We know and experience that Ephesians 1.11 promise that God is working all things after the counsel of His will. All things after the counsel of His will. We know, too, that Yahweh is immutable. Big word. What does it mean? That His purpose, that He and His purpose, it's unchangingly perfect. You guys know some of the texts. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, Moses calls him the rock, capital R, rock, with an exclamation point. 
Some of you are familiar with Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He, he is perfect. No addition is possible and no subtraction is needed. He's perfect. He's always been perfect. He is the immutable God. He is forever without alteration. You think about it. Fluctuating, vacillating, fluid, shifting sovereignty is no sovereignty at all. He's immutably sovereign. These are the two attributes we're looking at tonight. He's immutably sovereign. He cannot not be sovereign. He is God indeed. Because He is infinite in power and authority, it's what sovereignty means. Because He is unchangeably so, it's what immutability means. We know, guess what? Every one of His promises is good. They cannot not come to pass. Every promise He's made to you is good. Doesn't this give you some assurance and confidence? <laughs> Doesn't put a, sp a spring in your step? I would guess this is one of the practical benefits. You know, I've been challenging you to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. We've talked about this over and over. I think I've mentioned it in every series. This is the practical outworking of what it means to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. You're free. If you really believe God is, God is who He is, and He says, and He is who He says He is, and He can do what He says He can do, you're absolutely free. You're free from all the constraints that the unbeliever is stuck with. Glad, reckless, joy, obedience is unleashed in your life. In learning God correctly, we are freed up. We are freed up to actually live Hebrews 11:36. We don't only believe He's God, we believe He's a rewarding God. He's a good God. He's a, he's a comp, that's the way I like to say it, he's a competent God. <laughs> you can find no flaw in him. He always does what he says. It's why, it's why he's not embarrassed to call his people to do impossible things. Because he is immutably sovereign. And he will equip his people to do whatever he calls them to do. In Piper's book entitled Providence, he defines providence as purposeful sovereignty. Why anything? Why everything? For the glory of God and the joy of the elect. And he can make that happen. He will be glorified and he will blow up his people's hearts with indescribable and unending joy for a billion eternities because he's full of joy himself. Piper states that God, God's, I love this, God's sovereignty is hands-on. I love this. It's hands-on. It's pervasive. <laughs> you know, there's not one maverick molecule, as R.C. Sproul says. The providence of God is ultimately the outworking of his immutable sovereignty. You guys know the illustration. I, I've shared it with you before, and I'm sure you, it's, it's everybody. You know the illustration about the tapestry, right? The tapestry, have you ever seen underneath the tapestry? It's a disaster. 
It's chaos. There's no design, no discernible design to it. But if you look at the top of the tapestry, what? It's a masterpiece. And you know what you and I are supposed to believe when we roll out of bed in the morning? That God is at work on his masterpiece? <laughs> Man, it looks confusing and disordered right now, and I can't see any real purpose in any of this, but we believe it. We believe there's purpose. We believe in the uppercase A artisan. We know there's a masterpiece at work here because he is immutably sovereign. I'm going to share a legend with you um, about Moses. Not biblical, of course. It's merely a fictional tale designed to make a biblical point. So try to stay with me. There's a few details here. This, uh, this report was sent to Moses. The report tells that a traveler came by the well in the community there for a drink and unknowingly dropped his purse of gold. Second traveler came by for a drink. He found the purse of gold and went on his way. He kept it. A third traveler came by for a drink and took a nap in the shadow of the well. The first traveler, meanwhile, realizes that he has lost his gold and he assumes he must have lost it at the well. So he returns and he finds the third man sleeping there. The first man demanded his money from the third man, who of course knew nothing about it. An argument ensues, and the first man killed the third man. As the legend goes, Moses complained to God about this providence. Why should the first man lose his purse and end up killing another person? Why should the second man have gotten a purse full of gold without working for it? Why should the third man, who was completely innocent, be slain? As the legend goes, God explained his design in the apparent disorder. The first man was a, was a thief's son. His purse contained money stolen by his father from the father of the second man, who, finding the purse, merely received what was his. The third man was a murderer whose crime had never been revealed, who received justice from the first man um, in his death. Then God said to Moses, in the future, believe that I am at work in what transpires. Even if you can't see it or understand it. Well, this is obviously a legend. It's a tale. It's folklore designed to help make a biblical point. You can't understand all that God is doing. You can't see it. You can't even appreciate it all. But God is working perfectly with his immutable sovereignty. You know, as we've talked about in this series, men like to quiz God and even accuse God. And we've made the point God's not in the business of explaining himself. He almost never explains himself, even to his people. He made no explanation to Job. He never even brought up the, the trial. He does not give an account of himself. I heard no preacher say this, and I love it. You always know what God's going to be like. He'll always be like himself. He'll always be in accordance with his character, with his revealed character. But you never know exactly what he will do. You don't really know what he will do. 
Now, we'll be in keeping with all the real revealed characters that, that he is, and attributes he's shown us in Scripture, but he's mysterious. And he'll be doing things at, you know, a level you can't begin to parse. It's part of his immutable sovereignty. So as God's people, we don't really need an explanation. We have God's what? Revelation of himself and all the promises he's made to his people. The mature Christian doesn't waste time seeking explanations. He spends his time worshiping. And what is the premier or paramount promise in the Bible, which contains almost every other promise? Romans 8, 28, right? God says, I will cause all, not some or most, I will cause all things to work together for good to those who love me, those called according to my purpose. I think I said to you last week, I wouldn't trade that promise for 10,000 explanations. I don't need an explanation. Man, I got this promise here. I got, I got, I got, I got God, <laughs> who is God. He does whatever he pleases. And I got his promise. I don't need an explanation. If God thinks I need one, he'll give me one, whenever that might be. Maybe it's an eternity future. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care about an explanation. I just want to be low before Yahweh. Worship and adore and treasure and find my deepest pleasure in him. I've been reading some of the Puritans lately. Finding, let me just ask you, is he your deepest pleasure? If he's not, you have problems. You've got serious problems. You may be a, a good church member in good standing, but if he's not your deepest pleasure, you've got problems. You've got a huge problem before God. Because if you know him, he will be your deepest pleasure. I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy quote. You know who it is. My apologies. No more Piper quotes today. This is a lengthy quote. I want to read it to you. Romans 8.28 contains virtually every other promise God has made to His people. If you live inside this massive divine pledge, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. This is true. For those of you who live like this, this is true. You know it's true. You can't be blown over. You can't be blown over. Doesn't mean you won't weep and wail and struggle and sometimes, you know, get on the floor but you can't be blown over. Outside of Romans 8.28, all is confusion, anxiety, fear, and uncertainty. I'm obviously quoting again. Once you walk through the door of the unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. It all changes. You thought it was all random. You realize now it's not random. God's doing it. It changes everything in your life when you get up in the morning. God's doing it. Let me continue. There comes into your life stability, yes, depth, yes, and freedom. <laughs> like I've been saying, you simply can't be blown away anymore. The confidence that 
An immutably sovereign God governs for your good. All the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge, security, hope, and power in your life. When God's people really believe and live by this promise, they are the freest and the strongest people in the world. Amen? It's right. It's right. <laughs> Good theology. Good theology, Romans 8, 28. It destroys worry. It destroys anxiety. It's the most common sin in the church, worry. Some of you like to worry. I used to like to worry. God's, God's got me out of it. I just don't do it. I, will, I refuse to do it. It's a little bit, could be backhanded blasphemy. If you call yourself a Christian and persist in your worry. This is one reason God never gives a, His people an explanation. We don't need one. We got, we got Him and we got Romans 8.28. We don't need an explanation. We don't need it. We can walk through any circumstance no matter how hard. Because He is forever immutably supreme in power and authority. We can risk everything every day because His promises are full of dominion and awe. <laughs> his promises are just full of it. I'm God and I'm awesome. Here's a promise for you. <laughs> Take that. You've got to love Yahweh, man. you just got to love Him. You remember that great text over in John? I read this, I think, like three days before I left to go to seminary. Okay, at the age of 42, when everybody said, this is not wise, Jim, it's not wise. It's not wise. Did you ever hear that, Brad? <laughs> I think Brad heard it too. It's not wise at your age. You got kids in college. It's not, not, not wise. You remember this, Joshua 21, 45, as, as the Jews came into the promised land. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to Israel failed. All came to pass. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? No. No. He can take a 42-year-old CPA who's pretty messed up in a lot of ways and send him to seminary and somehow inexplicably end up in Italy for 20 years almost. Karen and I were laughing about it on the way down. It was just, it, 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 it never made any sense. None of it made any sense to the surely, you know, merely rational person. But God did a wonderful thing. He did a wonderful thing. Again, we always know what God is going to be like, but we, we never really know exactly what He's going to do. But it will always fit within the parameters of Romans 8.28. <laughs> you know, it's not, always, it's not about our understanding. It's never about our understanding. It's always about the promise. It's always about the promise. It's about God being God and about the promise. Those of you who've studied Hebrews 11, that great hall of fame of faith chapter, we know that sometimes God delivered His people from the edge of the sword, 1134, but sometimes His people were put to death by the edge of the sword. This is God's business. 
Sometimes God puts his raw power on display in the deliverance of his people. Sometimes he puts his beauty and sufficiency on display as he sustains them through the trial, even martyrdom. We'll see that here in just a few minutes. So I want to look at two two well-known accounts that illustrate the immutable sovereignty of God. I just want us to enjoy it. You guys know these accounts. No, nothing new here, but something to consider. Um, first, we'll look at God's providence in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Secondly, we'll look at God's providence in Stephen's life. Now, Shadrach and the boys were delivered. Stephen was what? Stoned. So how do we understand this? It's not difficult if we're biblically literate. What will God do? All his good pleasure in each circumstance. That's what he'll do. You know, that's the answer, right? <laughs> we, know, we always know what he's going to be like. We're not quite sure what he'll do. But the macro answer is he'll do all his good pleasure. He'll glorify himself. And oh, yes, he'll bring inexpressible joy to his people. Even Stephen, the Lord Jesus, stood at the right hand of God to receive his first martyr. Jesus is never standing at the right hand of God. He's always sitting at the right hand of God. It's a big deal. You know, Stephen, Stephen got something I don't know that anyone, anyone else has ever gotten. Yeah, he was murdered. But I bet he had a, well, I'm not betting. No doubt he had a huge smile on his face as he entered glory. What will God do? The important, the, the, I think the important answer is, does it matter? Does it matter what he does? Whatever your situation, does it really matter what he does? Is it, is, is it okay if he, if he does something completely opposite to what you're explicitly praying? Is it okay with you? Is that okay? You know, it happened to Paul. It happened to Jesus. It might happen to you too. Is it okay? Yes! It's okay. It's okay. Of course it's okay. He's God. And I'm not. Turn with me over to Daniel 3. We'll buzz through this pretty quick. Daniel 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, built a 90-foot golden idol. Verse 6, he demanded that all bow down under the penalty of death. Verse 12, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar was outraged and had them brought before him. Now I'm going to pick up here verse 14. Verse 14. Just in summary, Nebuchadnezzar, he responds, Is it true you guys won't worship my God? Verse 15. Now if you're ready at this moment, when you hear the music, fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you will not worship, I'm in verse 15, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you <laughs> out of my hands? Oh, guess what? The living God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, oh, I love this answer. This is one of my favorite, one of my favorite narratives in the Bible. I love this. 
Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. It's like, you know, uh, 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 yeah, dominion and awe is coming off our lives. You should already know the answer. We're not going to bow to your stupid, your, your stupid idol. I love this. Verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is what? What does your Bible say? He's able. He's competent. He's immutably sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. It's all right there in that one word. He's able to deliver us. But I love this about this, this account. Verse 18, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. If we really believe that, that death is gain, I don't know how many of you are there. I don't know if, if you believe death is gain. I'm sold out on death is gain. I'm 100% sold out that death is gain. I really am. And these guys, these guys, I think they're sold out on that. You know, I'm, I'm probably never going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. I'm, I'm probably never going to have to face that. But these guys, they, uh, they were able they don't presume to know what he will do. I love that. And they stand in the immutable sovereignty of God. Bad theology hurts people. Good theology sets us free to live out the radical implications of an immutably sovereign God. This is what we see in the, bo in the boys' lives here. I want to make one other point. They were what? They were ready. When, when the heat came, literally, ready, right? They were ready. And we know this from 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? You will be persecuted. You will be. It will happen. It will happen. And they were ready. Are you ready? Are you ready? When the persecution comes, you're supposed to be ready. God expects you to be ready. You call yourself a Christian, God expects you to be ready. It's not supposed to be a surprise. We're supposed to be ready. Shadrach and the boys, they had this deep abiding assurance that God would do whatever was perfect in this circumstance. Look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. And he gave orders to heat the furnace up seven times more than normal. And they tied up Shadrach and the boys. And, 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 and he gave the order to cast them into the furnace. And you guys know the story. Verse 22. The flame was so hot, the guys that threw them in the furnace were consumed. Shadrach and the boys were cast into the fire. Verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and he stood up in haste and he responded and he said to the high officials, was it not three guys we threw in there? Who's that fourth guy? Well, who is he? You know who he is, right? And he actually says he looks like an angel. He looks like, well, he actually says he looks like the son of the gods. Who is it? I believe it's Jesus Christ. I believe it's pre-incarnate Christ. It's possible it's merely an angel. It's possible. I, I believe it's Jesus Christ. He comes. <laughs> he says, he says, who's the fourth guy? You know, it's why James chapter 1, verse 2, I like to say this a lot. 
That's why we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials. Because our God is immutably sovereign. We know the trial is from Him. We know that He'll be with us in the trial and He'll bring us out of it. He never leaves His people in the trial. He never leaves them in it. Now, He may give them the ultimate escape, which is death, right? That's the ultimate escape. Let me get out of here. Let me begin my eternal sojourn with the most beautiful, fascinating, captivating being in the cosmos. I heard a preacher say one time, preach on Daniel, and he gave four points. I think it was MacArthur, actually. He said the boys, Shadrach and the boys, were different, dedicated, daring, and delivered. I thought that was really good. But I had to critique John. He left out a major point. I guess because he couldn't find a D. I tried to think of a D word. That would, you know, when they do that, they do that thing. I, I, he couldn't find a D word, so he just left it off, I guess. Um, there's a big point here, verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace. He said, you boys, come on out of there, verse 27. And all the, all the governors and the, and the high officials, they gathered around. And there, was the, there was no effect on them from the fire, either on their bodies or, or, or their clothes. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you get the point? Here's, the, here's that last point. When, 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 you, when, when you can embrace dominion and awe, and it's coming off your life, it's the aroma of your life. Dominion and awe is the aroma of your life. Unbelievers will see it. Unbelievers will see it. Now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. He said he delivered, their God delivered them. Verse 29, therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speaks against uh, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb. For there is no other God who's able to deliver like this. Amen? When, when dominion and all is coming off your life, when that's the aroma of your life, none of us do it perfectly, but when that's the aroma of your life, people see it. It's evangelism. Dominion and all, living that reality, it's just evangelism. It's probably the best evangelism we do. You remember what Jesus Christ said to his disciples, that in that risky and costly place, Luke 21, 13, this will be your occasion for what? This is your occasion for what? Your testimony. It's what it's about. It's part of what it's about. He's going to sanctify you in the trial, and He's going to use you as a witness in the trial if you're willing to be used as a witness. If you'll stand and make much of Christ in it, right? So, yeah, who doesn't love that story? Different, dedicated, daring, and delivered. Well, let's turn over to... Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8. We find the story of Stephen. We have a slightly different outline for him, different, dedicated, daring, and dead. Why does God deliver Shadrach and the boys and not Stephen? We don't have to have an explanation. 
He does whatever He pleases. Get comfortable with that. Not only get comfortable with it, but love it. That He does what He pleases, not what you please. He does what He pleases. You know, the, 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 mature, the mature believer loves that. Loves that. You know, you just read the Apostle Paul when he, he wanted that thorn in the flesh removed. He was giddy when God said no. He said, therefore, I am well pleased that God said no. <laughs> you, know, you know, when you, when you believe God can do whatever He says, and He actually does whatever He says. You know, it's that thing C.S. Lewis, Lewis talks about, that complex good, God's complex good. It's a tapestry thing. We don't understand. You know, we know there's a, we know there's a masterpiece, but there, there's, we don't get it. It's the complex good of God. We don't have to see it. We know it's there. We, we, we know it's there. That complex good of God. Let's pick up here in chapter 6, verse 8. He was full of, Stephen was full of grace and power, performing wonders and signs. Verses 12 through 14, the Jews dragged him before the council and gave false testimony. Verse 15, Stephen's face was like that of an angel. That would give you some clue. Maybe we should back off of this guy, right? I don't know. I, I would think. I, that's what, I mean, I would have that, that thought at least. Chapter 7, Stephen begins to preach. And as most of you know, it's an abbreviated history of the nation of Israel. It's not a I'm okay, you're okay sermon. It's not a Joel Osteen message. You get over here to verse 51. Acts 7.51, this is not a Joel Osteen message. Listen, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now, this would be a good sermon for Joel Osteen's church. Verse 52, which one of, uh, of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you now have become. Don't you love good preaching? <laughs> Verse 53. You who received the law has ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Did not keep it. He indicted them. He called them murderers. They killed the Son of God. Most heinous crime in the cosmos, in the history of the world. We get over here to look at verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were filled. And they were filled. <clears throat> they were cut to the quick. I'm sorry. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. Verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of, oh, guess who? The Apostle Paul, who will be sovereignly converted soon. Verse 59, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Exclamation point in my Bible, I don't know. 
Do not hold this sin against him. He's already feeling the joy. He can forgive unilaterally because he's already feeling the presence of God. I mean, his face was shining. He was full of the Spirit. Does it matter? Does it matter that I've been stoned to death? It's a glorious thing, right? It's a glorious thing. <laughs> it's a glorious thing. And having said this, he fell asleep. And I, I actually believe that that's about how it was for him. It was like falling asleep, looking at Christ standing at the right hand of God. You don't think God's going to show up when you're in a trial? Then I just have to say, I don't think you're converted. I, at least you might be converted, but you're biblically illiterate. He will show up. And it may be years and it may be an eternity future before you understand all that he was doing at that moment. But you don't have to understand. You know he's a master artisan. And then there's a masterpiece going on here. There's a masterpiece going on here. Beloved, we just got to believe this stuff, right? We just got to incorporate this into our lives. So God keeps a different kind of promise to Stephen than the one he gave to uh, Shadrach and the boys. It's a different kind of promise. It all falls under Romans 8, 28, but it's a different kind of promise. I'll meet you there. I'll meet you there. I'll give you everything you need there. This is what an immutably sovereign God does, right? <laughs> You've got to love it. Whether God delivers, a, delivers us or not, He meets us there. It's the tapestry thing. But let's look at, the, let's look at least one, one of the purposes here that, that we can discern from the text, Romans, pardon me, uh, Acts 8. We know that Saul was there, hearty agreement, putting the, Stephen to death. And on, that great, and on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all what? Okay, here's, 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 that, here's that complex good. They were all scattered throughout the regions, Judea and Samaria. Verse 3, Saul began, we know Saul was ravaging, ravaging the church. Verse 3, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he put them in prison. Verse 4, therefore those who had scattered went abroad, what? Went abroad, what does your Bible say? They went abroad, what? Sharing the truth, preaching. The catalyst for all of this was Stephen's martyrdom, which Stephen loved. You ask him when you see him. He loved it, that he was counted worthy. You know, we got to think like this sometimes, beloved. We just got to, got to praise God we've been counted worthy, right? That I've suffered for His name's sake, whatever form that takes. And there are myriad forms that it may take the church growth movement in Acts, preaching, prayer, and persecution. It's the same now. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about real church growth. I'm not talking about, you know, pet, you know, patting people on the head and tickling their ears. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real church growth. Real church growth. Suffering in the Christian life is never random. It's always Romans 8, 28. I heard one preacher say, you can't be a real Christian if you don't understand this. If you haven't begun to live Romans 8, 28, 
or shall we say, you're an infant if you haven't begun to understand and incarnate Romans 8.28. And letting that be your north star, shall we say. If you don't believe and understand that God is sovereign in your trials and that He is working some good, some mysterious, beautiful, complex good in them, you will most likely begin to doubt, distrust, slander, accuse, become angry, and even fall away. Of course, we know, we know those who are called fall away it just means that they had, they had been a part of the, the visible church. They were never truly converted, and they just fell away. They, they, they fell away. Jesus was never their ultimate pleasure, ultimate treasure, ultimate purpose. Why am I married? For the glory of Christ. Why do I have kids? For the glory of Christ. Why do I work? For the glory of Christ. Why do I try to love my wife better? For the glory of Christ. We know what life is about. We know what we're called to do and what we're called to be. And you got to love that. I almost, almost preached to Esther this morning, and uh, the Lord pushed me off. But you know that great thing in Esther? If I perish, I perish. Okay, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. This made me think of John 11. I may have to preach John 11 before too long, but it's one of my favorite texts. You remember Martha and Mary sent for Jesus because Lazarus was sick. Jesus tarried for several days before going to them, and consequently Lazarus died. Anyone remember why Jesus did that? Go study John 11. You'll love it. What does the Bible say? Jesus loved them, so he did not go to them. Don't you love it? Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so he tarried two more days. Jesus loved them, so he tarried, allowing Lazarus to die, putting Martha and Mary through a very arduous trial. So what kind of love is this, right? What kind of love is this? The perfect kind that no worldling can even begin to understand. God's complex good. Romans 8.28 love. It's a tapestry love. It's a masterpiece love. You remember all that Jesus did through this. He solidified the faith of His disciples. Many Jews were converted. He answered Martha and Mary's prayer way better than they asked. They asked for a healing. What did they get? A resurrection. <laughs> you gotta love it, man. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to heal him, but I'll raise him up from the dead. <laughs> and ultimately, it was glory for Christ and joy among his people, the thing God is always doing. It's the tapestry thing. And we know it will be beautiful. Jonathan Edwards says something like this. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Through God's immutable sovereignty, he designs all afflictions of his children for the increase of their ultimate and everlasting pleasure. We've got to learn to think like this. When the trial comes, God's preparing me for eternal pleasure. This is part of my eternal pleasure. I know it's hard right now, and I have to weep, and I have to cry, and I have to bury somebody. But God's going to work it for good. We either believe it or we don't. So we know Yahweh is sovereign, meaning supreme in power and authority. We know that Job 25.2 is true, dominion and all belong to Him. We know that Ephesians 1.11, I think it is, that He's working all things after the counsel of His will. We know that Yahweh is immutable, meaning He's unchangingly perfect. 
We know that Malachi 3.6 is true. I am the Lord. I change not. We know that Deuteronomy 32.4 is, is a perfect description. Moses called him the rock. We know Hebrews 13.8 is true. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is anything too hard for God? No. Not in your life, not in my life, not on the far side of the cosmos. Nothing is too hard for God. Let me close like this. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Some of, the, some of you will have this marked in your Bible. I have it marked in my Bible. I love this. I love David's words here. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. So if you call yourself a Christian, every day you wake up, God expects you to live out the reality of Psalm 103:19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So when we radically obey, will we be delivered or will we not be delivered? And I just end with this question, does it matter? If you understand your Bible, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. God's going to do what God's going to do, and it's going to be good. And we don't have to understand it. We just know it. And we love it. Let's pray together.